Good morning, Facebook Live. Or should I say, good morning, Vietnam? I'm a big fan of Robin Williams, but good morning, Facebook Live. It's great to see you again to be on here uh, live, you know, without any errors. Kind of like preaching a sermon, except it's very different. I'm staring at myself the entire time. So I'd much rather see you all. I wish we were all together in person, but that just isn't an option right now, is it? So here we are. We're trying to do the best we can with what we have. And you can see that I'm on my 2007 laptop so that the quality is not near as good, but hopefully it will be less choppy like a robot or as a friend tells me that I'm kind of like Godzilla. So hopefully this helps alleviate some of the problems and that uh, we can go on forward without hesitation, if you will in our service quality and again i'm just trying to do the best i can with what i have and this is the place that we're at so just to start off with announcements and kind of get those out of the way a little bit as people continually uh, arrive um there's two major needs always uh one is food uh the genoa food hub is always looking for volunteers definitely something uh, to consider if you're able if you're healthy uh, I know that there's a process uh, very similarly to the second one to give blood. I know the Red Cross is, you know, you've probably seen some of the commercials now. Blood only has a shelf life of 42 days. And during this pandemic, uh, it's going to be a little bit longer than 42 days, obviously. So uh, people still need to donate. And, uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of safety precautions that are in place. And you have to call and make an appointment just the same. But then again, like, it's worth it. It saves lives. The life is in the blood, as God says. So remember, there's always those two needs. Just continue to be on the lookout for that, as well as just with people that you know. Just call and reach out. There's lots of tangible needs I know that can be done, you know, whether it be clothing or technology. There's, there's lots of things, lots of avenues, ways to help people, ways to love our neighbor, uh, ways to just simply move forward, if you will. Because I don't know that we're all moving forward so fast uh, these days. It feels kind of like we're in limbo. So be still and know that I'm God kind of a season in our lives. And it's a good season. It really is. Um, not necessarily for everyone. But uh, just understand that there's always things that we're learning. And that we're growing as people in these challenges and these situations. So, and then lastly, uh, if you're able also on our website, uh, go to that. We do accept online giving. You know, there's a lot of sources out there for charitable giving, so we're one of them. <laughs> so I want to make sure that our church uh, family, Iglesia Apostolica Nueva, uh, still gives rent support as well as other monies because they're having a building that's empty for the last couple months. And so that can uh, be kind of costly if you're not getting in any kind of tides like they were used to and so today though uh now that the announcements are done you know those dreaded announcements but uh yeah just remember uh food hub give blood and then charitable giving at the same time and so today we're finishing up this remarkable series that uh we've been doing the sermon on the mount and it is quite a doozy and jesus at the end of this today literally just drops the mic on us and so it's it's pretty fascinating uh just because we wouldn't end uh any sermon kind of that way we always want to be semi-encouraging but jesus is like nope we're just gonna drop the mic on you here 
leave you with the greatest decision in your life, whether to follow Jesus or to not follow Jesus. And yeah, it just kind of leaves everyone stunned and awed and amazed. But I did want to take a few moments, it could be quite a few moments, to just recap everything that we've talked about. So if you can, I'm going to pray and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start the Sermon on the Mount again. And so, dear Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for this beautiful morning and this beautiful day. Your mercies are new every morning. And I'm really excited to finally be able to go outside and to mow my yard this week after the snow and after the rain and everything else. So, Lord, we just thank you for every blessing, even the ones that we fail to see. And trust, Lord, that you are sovereign in all of these matters and that there is nothing to be worried about. We're just excited to watch you move and to be a part of your kingdom. And so, Lord, bless this morning. Bless us with the Holy Spirit. Tune our hearts and our minds to your will that we may understand and that you may reveal yourself and your will and desires in our lives and that we may uh, just understand them and uh, hopefully learn how to follow them all for your glory, Lord. So thank you and lead us well. All this we forever pray in our Lord and Savior Jesus' name. Amen. So the end of the Sermon on the Mount today. How exciting. I love it. It is, uh, as J.I. Packer describes it, it is the most well-known piece of scripture. Not a single verse, but a you know, unit means construction of thought. And thus, because it's the most well-known, it's the least understood, and it is subsequently the least obeyed, if you will. Uh, that is just the nature of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it requires serious interpretation, and you know, there's been so many different interpretations over the years. We need to watch out for legalism. We also need to watch out for lawlessness, and those are some things that we're going to talk about today. But overall, just understand the grace of God, the unmerited favor in the life of his believer, the fact that he's the one that holds out the olive branch to us in the first place, as well as the mercy that God gives, not getting the punishment that we deserve. And we'll talk to that in a second when we go to the Beatitudes. But Matthew chapter 5, just starting at, at verse 1 or even a little before that, in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he calls his disciples, and then he does you know, a bunch of miracles, a bunch of healing. And then now he sees the crowds, and he goes up on the mountains. And when he sat down, his disciples came down. So there are essentially two different people groups that are here listening to this Sermon on the Mount. There's the crowds that are just like, wow, who is this Jesus guy? He's doing a lot of different things. Uh, I have no idea, like, wow, how can I get him to do things for me? That type of crowd. And then there's disciples, people who, like uh, James and John in chapter 4, just leave their fishing boats, leave their families, and they're like, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going I'm to die to self, and I'm going to live for Christ. And that's exactly where this begins, so you know that the are there. Yes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are there, but they can also very easily be fit into the regular crowd. They're like, whoa, who is this Jesus guy and what on earth is he doing? Then we came across the Beatitudes, and this is where it starts. Those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is where it all begins, understanding that we're spiritually broken and understanding that 
<clears throat> we can't help ourselves and we can't save ourselves. That we, in fact, indeed are slaves to sin and that we need help. And so that's where this all begins. And if we were to summarize chapter 5 in its entirety, it would be all about fulfillment and fulfillment in Christ. And so the Beatitudes are those life-changing growths. It's not that you uh, just decide one day that you want to be meek or that you want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The fact of the matter is, is that these are the fruit of the Spirit that are growing inside us as believers when we do bow the knee and we do submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so we understand our spiritual brokenness. Then the second one, we mourn over sin. We become meek, which is confident yet humble in who we are in Christ, not in who the world says we are. We hunger and thirst for righteousness because indeed we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we want more of that. And we want to see more of that in the world around us and everything that's going on today. And it just stinks because it's really hard to right now because people are just so vehement and angry about so many different things. Um, but either way, that's not here or there. You become merciful. You show mercy on people because of the mercy that you've been seeing. You grow pure in heart because this is God's heart. This is Christ's heart that we see in the Beatitudes in the beginning in the first place. And so in order to become like Christ, these are things that are going to happen to you to change you. And it's going to happen through situations and circumstances. And then, of course, people are going to revile you, persecute you. They're not going to like your righteousness. They're not going to like that you stand for Jesus. And so ultimately, though, what Jesus is saying is that you're going to be different. And we see that in verse 13 through uh, 16. Salt and light. Like, how does salt that lost its taste be restored? Well, Jesus has to do a miraculous work in your life in order to restore that saltiness so that you're not just like everyone else. You're not just like the rest of the world. And so Jesus um, tells us that we're going to be different. We're going to be a light and that we do this in order that people may see us and that they can give glory to God who is in heaven. And then the central point of the chapter and probably the most important point of the Sermon on the Mount comes in verse 17 through 20. Christ came to fulfill the law. And he tells you that out. I haven't abolished the law of the prophets. In fact, I've come to fulfill them. So in like if we were to go back to chapters one through four, you would see that fulfillment in prophecy as Matthew explained it. It starts with the genealogy, then it's the miraculous birth, then it's John the Baptist, then it's the perfect sinless life while being tempted by the devil. And then um, you see him calling his disciples and you see him start, you know, repent for the kingdom of heavens at hand. And so not only does he say that he's come to fulfill the law, but he drops the bomb, if you will, at the end of the, the thing in chapter 20. For unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we need a righteousness that exceeds the most righteous people that exist on our world today. Or by whatever righteous standards we may have or be seen, so on and so forth. So... There's a lot in that, obviously, like God's holiness and man's brokenness and sin. And then, of course, the plan of reconciliation. You have to see that Christ is indeed the only way, which is why we need to submit to him and his will and his ideas and his design for life as we know it all in ourselves. And so this this was 
completely shocking to every person that was there. And so, but it's the centrality of the Sermon on the Mount in itself is that Jesus is the fulfillment. So not, but right after, just immediately right after Jesus says, you need a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. And I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. Then Jesus interprets the Old Testament law for us. And there's this counterbalance in verses 21 through 48 and the rest of, of chapter 5 in its entirety. You have heard that it's said, but I tell you. That's exactly the strategy and the tactics, thus showing Jesus' authority, just showing his interpretation as well. It's always been an inside-out transformation that Jesus requires. And so we read about anger, anger and that you shall not murder. And yes, it's common sense that you're physically using your hands, that you're not going to physically murder someone. But the problem with sin goes way deeper, and it shows that we have murderous hearts, because we indeed do hate people. Hate people that don't think like us, or hate people that don't look like us, or just hate people sometimes for no reason whatsoever. Sometimes it's deserved, perhaps. But at the same time, uh, just the wantonness of hate and the disgust that we might have for other human beings on this planet is completely ungodlike in itself. And now I understand that they're sinners and I understand that sometimes there's causes, but just realize, again, the heart motives behind everything that we're doing and everything that we do. And so it shows that and he talks about that in anger, he talks about that in lust. He talks about that in, you know, so many, so many different concepts and especially loving your enemies. Like, who does that? Nobody really loves their enemies anymore. But you have to understand that the way God sees people versus the way we see people is uniquely different. And so Christ came and he fulfilled the law and then he gives us the blessing of the Holy Spirit that transforms us, that makes us holy, that imputes God's righteousness to us. And that changes our hearts. He turns a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And he does that um, just beautifully through the gospel and, and the gifts that God has given us. And then, of course, in that interpretation, we do become less angry. We do become less lustful. We do learn how to love people that are hard to love because we see their brokenness in them despite you know, the challenges that they may be having at that time. So, Jesus rightly interprets the law for us. Now we're moving on to chapter 6, and, and, and it's talking about, um, you know, our outward righteousness, if you will. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 18, and we're going we're gonna to hit this again in a little bit in Jesus' closing statements here in Matthew seven twenty-one to 29. But why do we do the things that we do? Uh, Jesus calls out our hypocrisy. And he calls out the hypocrisy of all those people um, that are the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, because when they're praying or when they're giving, they're wanting the attention of people. They're not doing it out of a genuine heart for God. They're doing it to earn acceptance and to earn favor from other human beings. And you see in how we give to the needy. Sometimes how we pray, how we fast, these outer works of righteousness, right? And so 
Yeah, Jesus challenges us on that, and he warns his disciples, don't fall into the same pitfall and the same trap that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are falling into at this time. Then, at the end of chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, Jesus essentially says, who are you going to build your life upon? In a long, long story short, like laying up yourself's treasures for on earth or treasures in heaven. And it's not so much the laying up, and it's not so much the us doing it, but who do we really serve? Are we self-serving, or are we God-glorifying? Uh, that's the real question in all of this. And then with the anxiety portion, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or what you'll drink, or anything like that. Um, and it continually wants us to be pointed to the kingdom of God, and then everything else will be added to us. And so the reality of our lives is who is our master, and then who is our provider? Who provides for us? Who is the master? And we've talked extensively about common grace and the world and creation and life as we know it, and everything else that, that goes on when we were talking about this. You can go back and listen to the sermons uh, on the website, Gospel Life Genoa, but at the same time, we're challenged, right? We're challenged, like, dang, like, I am self-serving, and I am this way, and I do need a Savior. Like, that's what all of this should be pointing to you at, is that, dang, I, like, we're seriously broken. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do, as Paul describes in another cha chapter in Romans? But here we are. And this is what we're doing, and again, we're just trying to do the best we can with what we have, right? And we want to learn, and we want to grow in our knowledge of the Lord, but we need to be challenged to think about these things, because again, the spirit of, of you know, the, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's exactly what the word does. If properly teached, it will challenge you. I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit will convict you, but the devil will always try to condemn and make you try to feel bad about this. But don't feel bad about this. Like, understand what Christ has done. Understand that fulfillment in him and that salvation is entirely the work of God. It's not on you, but it's on you to repent and believe. Like, there's always a human responsibility, but God is the one who saves all the work. You know, trying to balance legalism and lawlessness, if you will. Not always so easy. But then, after Jesus challenges us of who we are and, like, who we're serving and who our provider is, then he talks about us using judgment. Which, again, we're created in the image of God, and God is the righteous judge. Like, we were made to judge and to discern, um, you know, challenges that we may have in our lives. But at the same time, we as human beings, and especially prevalent right now, if you check out social media, we're just condemning people. We're judging them, and if you don't look like me, you don't think like me, I'm done with you. I'm just going to defriend you. I'm not going to like you anymore. We're just going to be done. And so there's a lot of condemnation that's going around right now in the world, and you know a lot of hypocrisy in that. Like, People taking the speck out of someone else's eye, as Jesus says, whereas they've got a massive log in their own eye. And so, yeah, judging. And then it's, again, very useful if properly done. It's, again, how, why are we doing the things that we're doing? And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at in this entire Sermon on the Mount. 
this how and why, and then the ultimate need for the Savior, of course. And so, moving on, after judgment, he talks and simplifies it. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the first five books is referred to as the law. Then there's the major and the minor prophets. And then this is the summary of what Jesus was talking about when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And so this is a starting point for us, is that do unto others as you would want done to them. Then, Jesus goes into two by two by two by two. And we're in the last two by twos. So you saw the first one, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Matthew chapter 7 verse 13. So we see that, that Jesus is exclusive in a sense. We know that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And that's clearly said here in the Sermon on the Mount, too, just the same as it's said in the Gospel of John. And that's the beautiful part of this, is that the supremacy of Christ, and even though people struggle with the exclusiveness of Jesus, like you should be uh, have a sense of security and have a sense of feeling because Jesus is the only one. He's exceedingly countercultural. He's the only one that's come down the mountain, whereas every other religion in the world tells us that we have to climb up the mountain, that we have to do good works, and that we're going to earn favor, and that we're going to earn this righteousness that's required. But Jesus kind of shuts that down in, in chapter 5, verse 20 saying, hey, you need a righteousness that describes even that of your most righteous people on the planet. And and again, just kind of leaves everybody stunned, like, oh, what, what do we do then? Like, do we not do anything? And so that leads to lawlessness, and that's actually worse than the legalism, I think, that what they were teaching back in the day. Either way, it's, it's crushing and, and defeatist in a lot of ways. But, sorry, I digress. A tree and its fruit is the second two-by-two, two, like beware of false prophets. Does Jesus change lives? And we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about are you growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are what are growing inside of you because of the blessing of the Spirit. When you bend the knee, when you repent, when you admit that Jesus is Lord and that you can't do it, you have sorrow in your heart, mournfulness for sin. And so that's the second two by two by two. Does Jesus really change lives? Is this really something to believe, something to work on? And so all of humanity stands before Jesus right now in a sense, you know, regardless of being a crowd or a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a disciple, this is, this is real life stuff. Like we're not messing around. So Jesus is like, what will you do with me? I am a real historical character. I really existed. I am the son of God, as people said. The Bible is the indestructible word of God that survived countless encounters in life. But this isn't an, a, you know, a doxology about apologetics. This is just talking about, again, what are you ultimately going to do with Jesus? Are you with him or are you against him? There's no gray area here. There's not a, oh, I kind of am, I kind of not. 
No, Jesus really calls this out in this next section. And it's probably the two scariest verses in the entire Bible. Um, but what are you going to do about Jesus? Are, are you with him? Are you against him? Eternity hangs in balance for all of us. And so Jesus tells us so in these last two by two by two statements. And so we'll see this now. And so Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then, everyone, then, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, verses 21 to 23, uh, verses 22 and 23, probably being the two scariest verses in the Bible, right? Like, on that day you'll say to me, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And then Jesus is going to say, yeah, I, I never did. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And it's just it's kind of scary for, for all of us. But I want to tie this back first and foremost because this is, in essence, Jesus encapsulating the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in a sense. And this specific section is Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 18 where he's talking about your outward uh, righteous works, if you will. And so we see there that the scribes and the Pharisees were doing it again for the acceptance of the people. And this is exactly what this is about. Because do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior? Have you bowed the knee? Have you uh, acknowledged that Jesus is indeed the only way, the truth, and the life to heaven uh, that we know of? Then, then the blessing of the Spirit and sanctification to make us holy and the fact that His righteousness and His perfect life is the reason that we're able to even have this relationship with God. And so Matthew chapter 6, when we summed it up, it was all about the Father, right? And it was all about intimacy with the Father Himself. And so we see that in the fact of Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, in the why do we do the things that we do, especially when it comes to God. Because are we trying to earn acceptance from you know other people, or are we trying to earn acceptance from God, or are we doing these things out of love for God rather than the law of God, again, trying to earn that righteousness in a sense of what we're talking about. And it's, it's really the tragedy of life. And I talked about this briefly last week in the Easter sermon is that uh, as, a, as a pastor, I'm kind of shocked 
that uh, I was thinking I was going to go, you know, atheist, agnostics, you know, talk to people about Jesus in that capacity, in that way. Um, but it just didn't, it, it didn't work out that way. All of my conversations, for the most part, have been um, with people who indeed know that there's a God. They know of God, but they don't know God. They don't know Jesus, and they don't have that personal relationship with Jesus that, that he requires. And so that intimacy, uh, again, like you see the word our Father, our Father, your Father, your Father. This is 10 times in the first 18 verses. If you were to look at the entirety of the Old Testament, you would not see Father intimately described in the entirety of the Old Testament 10 times, let alone two times, let alone one time. Because the only way that, that God as Father is described is as Creator, is as, you know, gigantic, I created everything, is the Father of creation. It's not this intimate, like, family unit and family relationship that, that he's talking about. And so not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who, you know, intimately uh, describes this and that who does these things will be in heaven. And so you see in verse 21 the contrast there. Not everyone, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And so that's a super dangerous uh, statement right there, because that's, that's a legalism statement, if you will. And then if you go down to verse 23, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And so there always needs to be, um, first and foremost, this intimacy with the Father. This is the relationship that Jesus wants with his children, with us as human beings on the planet. Like Jesus, uh, you know, like, I, I don't want to make it too grace-filled, but I certainly don't want to make it too law-filled. Like, God loves his creation. You must realize that the entirety of the earth and everything that's in it and everything uh, that we call life is because, ultimately, of the love of God and his desire to share that with others. Sure, he's lived in community as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit since Genesis chapter 1, you know, before time even began. And so he's always had that type of relationship, but life as we know it and human beings created in his image, like, yes, that's all because of the love of God. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But most people don't know because they're blind to their own sin. They're bent to their own way, right? And that's, you know, pretty much what we see here. Like, why do they do the outward righteousness? Well, because they want the glory for themselves. Like, you, you realize that, that Satan, in, in his entirety, was the most beautiful angel of all the creation that God had made. But it was within that that, that Lucifer uh, was so built up and so full of himself because he knew he was so beautiful and that he knew he was a special creation in the first place that he wanted God's glory all for himself. And that's exactly the human plight, is that we are all looking for that acceptance and that glory all for ourselves and so again going back to the fundamental question do you have a personal relationship with Jesus 
And so these people that were doing these works that he's saying, like they prophesied in his name, they casted out demons, they did mighty works. Like we don't know this, you know, for fact in here. We're, we can obviously see the Pharisees and the Sadducees doing it for their own acceptance. Um, but at the same time, are people doing this as, again, just an outward performance, trying to earn some righteousness before God? Um, you know, you don't really have that relationship. You know of him, but you're trying to please him because he's this, you know, high up, like law giving, law bearer. Like, I better, I better be fearful of him, right? And so a healthy fear is good. But there's also, of course, the unhealthy fear that, you know, we still see in society today, but not just within uh, Christ as ourselves. And so um, on that day, that judgment day, like Jesus is saying, like, you know, again, the good and, and the bad, there's, there's two ways to go. There's with Jesus or against Jesus. There's in heaven or there's not in heaven. In heaven. And so why do we do the works that we do? It ought to be, as chapter 6 explained and what Jesus was talking about in this intimate relationship with the Father, is that we want to do these things. We don't have to do these things to own righteousness. We want to do these things for Him. And so we see lawlessness and we see legalism in here. One who does the will of my Father. I want you to know that as a, as a pastor, there's always a, a mad challenge to like kind of dance between these two lines, if you will. The truth lies right in the middle for all of us. And while, you know, the legalism says, hey, it's your responsibility. You need to do these things. You need to earn his righteousness. Um, sometimes when we preach too much grace, too much kindness of God, we, we have that exact same problem in, in the sense that we lostness agrees that I don't have to do anything Jesus just loves me he paid for me I confessed once with my mouth that Jesus was Lord great I got my get out of jail free card I'm not going to hell anymore like good let's go on with my life and neither of those are a, a relationship with God okay like let's be real neither of those are a relationship with God um, I just want to talk Briefly, uh, three quick things just to think about and have you think about. God has adopted you as a son and daughter, right? Like the gospel talks about this, that, that God has chosen you. He's adopted you to be a part of his family, to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, to be and to live with him in glory, like from now until eternity at the same time. And so with that, I want you to think about this. Does that mean I need to belong to a church? Does that mean I need to belong to a local church body? And any answer other than yes is wrong. So yes, you do need to belong to a local church body. This is how God works within the lives of the believers and the lives of his children. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And if we go to Ephesians 4, which is a huge motto of our church, God gave the apostles, the evangelists, the teachers for the building up of the saints for the work of ministry until we all attain the maturity and the unity of the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Now that was paraphrased, obviously, but again, like the church is really, really important. And of course, it's a struggle. But if you call yourself a Christian and you don't belong to a church, 
you might want to reevaluate calling yourself a Christian. And I know that's hard, but I want to be real with you, especially in these nonsensical times that you know we're living in where everything's just a fantasy and nothing's really real. Uh, or at least it seems to feel that way sometimes, right? Because we're all about our feelings rather than the truth at times. So just think about that. So, church, spiritual disciplines. Let's talk about Bible reading, right? Like, I, I let me put it this way. Um, let's say that I wanted to grow in a love of food, okay? In gourmet food. I want to grow in my love and knowledge of gourmet food. Okay, so what would I do? Well, I would probably go to YouTube and maybe check out some cooking channels. Maybe I'd watch TV, you know, try to find some channels that, that had something to do with food that, you know, maybe I can learn, glean some information from. I would probably surround myself with uh, you know, a couple different chefs or go view a couple different chefs, go to different restaurants to see exactly, you know, how they're preparing the food. Again, I want to grow in my love of food. So what am I going to do to grow in that love of food? I'm going to do all those things, right? Because I want to know about it. I want to love it. And I want to be honest with you here too. Spiritual disciplines, Bible reading. How do I grow in the love of God? Well, I'm going to surround myself with God's people, the church, right? I'm going to grow in my knowledge of him through reading scripture. I'm probably going to watch, listen to some sermons on YouTube or maybe the TV, things of that nature. Again, this is how you grow. This is how you're part of it. So if you call yourself a Christian and you've never read the Bible, you need to challenge yourself. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in this capacity. And then lastly, like, I don't even need to say anything else other than the word itself. Because, again, I want to remind you all that I pray the Holy Spirit convicts you on these things. That these are right things and these are good things in order to have this personal relationship with Jesus. So be convicted but at the same time, don't let the devil condemn you in these things. I know that you're not good enough. The fact is, nobody on the planet's good enough. So don't let him tell you that you're not good enough and that you'll never make it and that, you know, this isn't even worth trying because he's just going to condemn you to get you to stop going. But either way, this very last one, i uh, going to challenge people. Ready? Giving. It's the hardest thing. Like, we don't give as people, and, and that is a command that God has given for his people and his church. So attending church, being a part of church, because you understand that, again, like the church isn't the thing, it's the body of believers. It's God's sons and daughters. You should want to have a relationship with them as God wants to have a relationship with them. God has told them that they're special just the same as he's told you that you're special and that again we can work out our differences we can follow you know the beatitudes we can be peacemakers like there is a reason for the church and it's a beautiful reason just the same as we call them spiritual disciplines again watch out for legalism watch out for lawlessness but there's a reason that they're called a discipline okay because you do have to force yourself sometimes to get away from the sinful nature even though we've been given the holy spirit we have to get away from that sinful nature and grow in grace and truth and 
and exactly what comes from the Word of God, and then of course giving. So, yeah, either way. <laughs> so that's a big passage. I never knew you. I never knew you. Remember that. There are millions of people that know of Jesus. That's that's way scarier than thinking about all those atheists and agnostics that I thought I was going to have conversations with. I know way more people who know of God but don't know God, and that that that's really scary. Um, it kind of kind of makes me want to cry a little bit. But uh, either way, moving on to the next section: build your house on the rock. What kind of foundation have you built your life upon? So. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And then verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. I'll be honest, this is very common sense in, in, in a sense. But the real dangers are with the youth that say, hey, we don't need any kind of foundation for life. We just do whatever we want when we want. There's no reason to build your life upon any kind of, you know, strategy whatsoever. And then also at the same time with several of the elderly people, they're like, eh, it doesn't really matter what kind of foundation you build your life on in the first place. The fact is that you'll change it a bunch of different times. And so that's not really the case. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And again, with these two by two by two by two, um, and this last one here, this uh, kind of encapsulates Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 34, when Jesus is like, who's your master? You can't serve God and money. And who's your provider? You know, God clothes the air. God gives common grace to all people in life. And so is there, you know, what, what's, what's the solid foundation? That's what Jesus is bringing up in this last section, too, just as he brought it up in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 34. What foundation are you building your life upon? And so the wise person may show that he or she has carefully viewed the shifting sands of life and its teachings and understand that Jesus is the only secure truth in life that we have. And that really is the case in there. And so... Um, I think the song is, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And, and there you go. Now you've had your worship song for the day. I'm sure Kim and the ladies would have done it better, but there was a hymn specifically written about this uh, little section, too, of building our house on the rock. And, of course, if you were to go to, uh, you know, a, a, a multitude of different um, chapters in the Bible, you would see that Jesus is talked about as a rock, you know, rock of refuge, rock of strength. Um, <clears throat> it, it is his world. And so, again, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Think about that song. Think about that. Um, John Piper recently wrote a really good book. And if you have Logos, the free app, you sign 
Yep. You can get it in audiobook as well as you know ebook for free right now, and it's priced in the coronavirus. And this is exactly how John Piper starts this book too, is that he talks about um, how how God is the rock and the foundation of the world, and talking about His sovereignty. And so, uh, just quickly, I want to bring you back to you know in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so think about the foundation of the planet, because this is the foundation for your worldview and the foundation for why we're here and why we exist. Because there's one of two options, right? And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We have that option, and that is the intelligent design option. Okay, now the other options that we have are Big Bang, where everything just kind of happened, all this life that we know of happened, or we have the evolution theory, where a single cell, little microscopic, can't see, you know, like a virus right now, uh, kind of fell on Earth, and from that single cell, all the diversity of life that we know it uh, exists. And, and that's that's how it happened. Those are your choices. Those are your foundations for life as you know it, if you will. And as life as we know it, you're going to start your foundation with either there is purpose and meaning, showing intelligent design, or you're going to look at it as an accident, which means that there is no intelligent design. Nothing has a purpose or a meaning. Everything is just solely an accident. That's not the case. That's not the case. Especially when you consider human bodies, you consider the diversity of life, you consider how we all have these organs that are alive in us, that are working without us having anything to do with anything uh, whatsoever. And so, is the foundation of your world an accident, or is the foundation of your world intelligent design like how you get to Jesus of course is another story for another time but as I told you Jesus is the only one who came down the mountain whereas all of the religions are works-based system where you have to climb up the mountain yourself in order to be righteous but Jesus flatly in the Sermon on the Mount says yeah you can't do that Your righteousness is not righteous and if we were to go back to what God says our righteous works look like in some of the Old Testament prophets, like it's not pretty. It's not pretty by any means. So again, what kind of foundation are we building our life on? Are we building our life as filled with meaning, as God's meaning? Or is life just an accident and we're just running around trying to figure out our own meaning for life and whatever sticks, sticks. And whatever works, works. I would hope you would think about that. Again, may the Spirit convict you. Don't let the devil condemn you on any of these. So, lastly, this last section, and think about it too, how Jesus just finished the Sermon on the Mount there. And great was the fall of it. Boom. <laughs> I love Jesus. Like he's 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 a realist. Like he's the creator. He he understands everything way more than we do by any stretch of the imagination. <coughs> so this last point and this last one will you bend your knee to the king. 
And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Understand, first and foremost, that the scribes lost their authority because they lost their love of Scripture. And this is very prevalent and very easy to see in the world today, uh, especially because they're teaching tradition, they're teaching tradition and legal requirements. Again, trying to climb up the ladder, and we just do this because this is what we do. We must understand that any authority that we have as preachers must come from the Word of God. If it doesn't come from the Word of God, then it's from the Word of man, then it's man-made, then it's not God-glorifying, and that's exactly what the scribes were doing at that time. They stopped glorifying God in his giving of the law, and they started making, like, heaving stones on people and crushing them with the legalism. Like, you have to do these things. God's not going to like you unless you do these things. God's totally not going to like that. And then, again, the same thing with tradition. Like, tradition is very man-made. Tradition is, you know, like, we just finished Lent, right? Like, did you know that the Bible doesn't talk about Lent at all? Like, it's not in there whatsoever. But either way, tradition, like, we do that. And legal requirements that are not found in Scripture, rather than what's the only authority found in Scripture. And then think about Jesus' authority here, too, at the same time. Like, what he's been saying in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, verse 11, it's like, on my account, okay? 5, 17 through 20, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. Like, Jesus is saying these things, right? This is authoritative. I have not come. Then he goes and interprets the law. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Like, Jesus is properly interpreting the law, interpreting the heart motives behind everything that we do. Chapter 6, verse 2, 5, 16, and 25, Truly I say to you, they've you know, earned their reward. They got what they deserved. If they want the praise of man, they can have the praise of man. That's way different than the love of the Father, by far. Amen. And so, chapter 7, verse 23, I never knew you. Like, do you see that? That we just talked about this? I never knew you. He is the king of judgment. And he's like, on that day, that's talking about judgment day. And that's a reality for every human being on this planet, that they will have a judgment day. And so, again, Jesus' authority. And then 724, everyone who hears these words of mine. And then in verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine. Again, God showing his authoritative nature in all of this. And then... And then, to make it even bigger for you, because the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, just three chapters in the scope of this, let's expand it a little bit more. Uh, as I was talking about before, Matthew chapter 1 through 4, we see Jesus as the Messiah, as the coming King, as the fulfillment of prophecy. Again, the genealogy, the miraculous birth, you know, the entire Gospel of Matthew is summed up in verse 21. They shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then everything else in the rest of the gospel is about Jesus and saving people from their sins. And that's exactly, so we see that Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. We see John the Baptist coming. We see Jesus being tempted by the devil, but obviously abstaining and fulfilling and being that perfect banner of righteousness that we see. 
and calling his disciples, starting his ministry. And then we move to chapters 5 through 7 here, where we see Jesus as Messiah in word, his authority in the word. And so I just pointed out those, you know, 12 passages where Jesus is talking, I, I, I. And so showing his divinity within that capacity. And then if we were to go on and go to chapters 8 and 9, we would see Jesus as Messiah in deeds, in works, if you will. Not works, again, of earning righteousness, but works of love in and of itself. And so there we have it. We have this massive uh, piece of scripture, the most well-known piece of scripture uh, that exists, um, that people have talked about, but again, the most least understood and the least you know, obedient to in the first place. And so you need to see that, and you need to see the gospel, and you need to see how Christ is indeed that fulfillment in everything. And so, brothers and sisters, like, if I can get up to the camera so you can see face to face, like, I, I want you to know that Jesus is real. Like, Jesus isn't a joke by any stretch of the imagination. And it is my serious conviction that you know who Jesus is and that you need to have a relationship with Jesus like if you want to think about you know legalism or lawlessness in this capacity uh, I urge you to abstain because Jesus does need you to bend the knee there is a requirement like yes salvation is entirely the work of God but there is that human responsibility to repent and then to believe and then to continue to grow in your love and your relationship with the Lord. And that is on you in a capacity. Yes, we have the blessing of the Holy Spirit to know indeed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But at that same time, we are constantly at battle, a spiritual war, if you will, between righteousness and, you know, our own egocentric sinful nature where we're constantly going to be pulled apart we're constantly you know when bible study comes oh i'm really tired or when church sunday morning comes oh i've had a really long week like you're gonna have to fight against those things like that's where you know our human responsibility lies and our in our non-susceptibility to the lies of the devil that we have and so everywhere that we see in the world today it, it's it's broken in some capacity we see it in human beings we see it in systems we see it in government now this was never god's original design this is the counter effect of sin because god's original holy design doesn't have any of these flaws and as human beings we're waiting for this and so you've got man's brokenness and again you've got god's holiness and so how do they get reconciled how righteous in, in this capacity to save a sinner like does he bend his law does he break his own law no god is good from a to z so what god has done to give the olive branch to human peoples is to send his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to come to the earth to live that perfect life to die the wrathful death that us as human beings who are at odds with god deserve in that cross and the blood and again the sacrifice of blood the life is in the blood it's the atonement of sins it's the paying for the punishment 
that we deserve. So when God laid his wrath on Jesus, who was willing to do this for his people, that's when God was able to justify us as, as human beings because his son took the punishment that we don't deserve in this gospel. And he gave it all to Jesus. He's just like, dang, like there's so much, like we keep singing all the time. But within this capacity, within this love of God, he justifies us. He declares us righteous. He redeems us. He buys us back from the sin of slavery so that we might have these options and opportunities to live in righteousness. Because as human beings, you know, we have free will, but your free will only goes so far as are you going to serve yourself and evil or are you going to serve God and righteousness? And it's within this, it's within this justification by faith alone, by grace alone, by trusting in the accomplished works of Jesus Christ that we can even have a right and real relationship with God like he's, you know, de not demanded, but as he requires. And Brothers and sisters, like Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And as complete strangers who may be watching this, as the gospel goes out farther than any other, you know, uh, you know, church service that happens on the Sunday morning, may you see this, and may God just continue to, you know, pour His light that you may see His holiness, because there's much sin and much brokenness right now. Like I don't think believers unbeliever alike can deny the sinful nature of the world right now. Now, what they can deny and pretend not to see is what is plain to see about God. And that's in human life, that's in nature, that's in everything else that's out there in the world right now. I remember, behold, God's glory down to the blades of grass. And my initial thoughts were, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Blades of grass, like I've got to mow it, I've got to water it, I've got to fertilize it. This is God's glory. But when you look at creation in itself, like this isn't an accident. It's not an accident by any stretch of the imagination or, or anything out there. Like I... In fact, I'm ashamed of myself because I have not only insulted myself, but I have insulted other people by holding on to that, you know, worldview at one point in time in my life that everything is just an accident and I should just go after whatever. And so you see the brokenness. Hopefully you can learn to see God's holiness and creation and life and understand that. And then most importantly, may the Lord bless you to see his son who is the redeemer, who is the savior, who is the Lord of heaven and earth and everything that's in it. And it's a beautiful thing because without him, like all hope is lost. Like if we're supposed to live our best life now, like forget it. It doesn't exist. Like you might have a season of high, but you can fully expect the season of low to follow right after that. And then maybe it'll go back high and then the season of low. But our hope is always, always, always been in Christ. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount tells us. That, hey, this world's jacked up. Like, it's a mess. Like, you need to be saved. And I'm just here and I'm just the guy to do it. And so, praise the Lord. So, Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for allowing us the opportunity to know you and to love you and to serve you and just to be a part of your kingdom.
And so, Lord, with as many people that don't know you, that don't have a relationship with you, uh, just, Lord, please reach out to them. Grant them repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth so that they may have uh, hope. Because without you, there is no hope. It's just temporary life. So, Lord, be with everyone. Show them your glory. It's in Jesus' name. We'll forever pray. Amen. Alright. Peace. Thanks for watching with us. Much love to y'all. Have a great Sunday. I know I'm going to enjoy mowing the yard later on the big tractor. I've been waiting for that for like a week. <laughs> so, anyway. Love Jesus.